Well, hey, good morning. How we doing? Take your Bibles and turn to uh, Luke 10. We're going to be in Luke 10 to start today, and then we're going to jump over to John 11. We are in a series called When God Draws Near, and we are looking at encounters with Jesus, trying to learn things about our Savior, and uh, maybe some things that he has to teach us through these encounters as well. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. There's ushers coming up and down the row. Uh, Before I get too far into this, to the moms in the room, happy Mother's Day to um, the children of moms who were guilted into being here this morning. You are welcome also. Nice job, moms. And um, I'm hoping that today we're going to learn uh, something that's important in God's Word. I've been excited to teach this message um, and was up early making sure that I fixed everything I did wrong last night. So we're ready to jump in and uh, let's pick it up. We're going to be in Luke 10, starting in verse 38. Luke 10 verse 38. It says this. It says, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. So a couple things that we learn right away about this woman, Martha. She she has a sister named Mary. Jesus is at their home. Jesus is teaching. And Martha is a doer. She's getting stuff done. And so I'm sure she's preparing the meal or whatever needs to be done. She's working in the background. She's serving. And I would just suggest to you that to prepare a meal back at Jesus' time, it was a little bit more complicated than taking the sams or d'oeuvres and throwing them in the microwave. So as she's preparing this meal, um, she can't hear what Jesus is saying. She's distracted, and she doesn't seem real happy with her sister, right? Like, like I would say what we're studying here, this is a pretty common problem. Would you agree? Some of you are going to be facing this this afternoon. You're going to be gathered with your family for Mother's Day, and there's always that one sibling who, as the table gets cleared, is just sitting there talking. Do you guys know who I'm talking about? And so this is a common problem. She's getting frustrated. Martha is a doer. The other thing you need to know about Martha, not only is she a doer, um, you never have to wonder what she's thinking. Like, she's going to let you know what's on her mind. So the text says that she went up to Jesus and said, hey, tell my sister Mary to help me. What it doesn't tell us is how she did that. Like, like was Jesus in the middle of teaching? Was there a break in the conversation and she approached him then? We don't know. Was Mary still sitting there? Hey, that one right there, she's lazy. (laughs) Say something to my sister. We don't know the particulars. But here's what we know. She was distracted, she was frustrated, and she was serving. Look at how Jesus responds. Verse 41, but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Verse 42, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. In this chapter and in what we're going to look at in John 11, when you see that word but, but the Lord answered her, verse 41, what that's indicating is that there is a response from Jesus which was different than what the person who asked the question was expecting. Hey, can you get Mary to help? 
She's expecting, Mary, go help your sister. What she gets is very different. Martha, you're troubled. You're anxious. The things that last, the important things, you're missing it. Now, now on the surface, you wouldn't think that Martha had a problem. Like, it was just two weeks ago, I was standing here, we were teaching about Jesus healing three people from the book of Matthew chapter 8. He healed a, a leper, a centurion, and a mother-in-law. And, and one of the things that we looked at that morning is, I talked about how do you know that you've really been healed after you've had an encounter with Jesus? And we said, well, you're going to want to tell people what happened. You're going to want to give a witness. You're going to be willing to be obedient to the things that he said, and you're going to be willing to serve him. So serving Jesus is actually a good thing. Like, I'm not out on that, all of you volunteers. Don't hear me to say that. But could it be? Could it be? That sometimes we get so busy, so wrapped up in the things that Christians do. And we miss the most important thing, the one thing that cannot be taken away, the good portion. It's interesting, Paul will tell the Philippian church in Philippians 4-7, he says, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Martha, you are anxious and troubled by so many things. Hey, hey question before we get into this, because you need to find yourself in this story. What's troubling your heart today? What has you anxious today? And I need, if you're going to get what Jesus wants us to get from these passages, you're going to need to put your finger on something in your heart that is causing you to be troubled or anxious. And I'm not talking about little things like, how in the world am I going to get out of the parking lot after this service? That's a thing, okay? But I'm talking the real things. It's great to celebrate Mother's Day, but I'm very aware as I stand here uh, that Mother's Day is a very, very hard day for a lot of people in this room. And sometimes there's a desire for kids, but that desire has not been met with other parents. There is a break in the relationship with their children and others. There's been the loss of a child or separation by distance or many things. What's troubling you? What is causing anxiousness? What is stealing from you the peace that God would desire? Is it possible that we're missing the most important thing. Flip over to John while he answers the phone. <laughs> I'll give you a minute. Like, that was a really good segue. We've got time right now. That, that works well. So, just teasing. Love you. Um, John 11, verse 1. I'm going to work my way through about 44 verses. Promise you we won't hit all the verses. I'm going to highlight on the interchange between Mary and Martha, as we study this chapter, John 11, verse 1, it says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. I struggle with Lazarus saying that word. Last night I kept using a TH in that word, and there's no TH in that word. So if I continue to struggle this morning, he's going to become Larry really quick. So just be <laughs> aware of that. Now there was a certain man who was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, 
and your sister Martha. Here's Martha again. Verse 3, so that now Lazarus is ill, it says, so the sisters sent to him, sending to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, to give you some context, as we jump into the middle of a book, into chapter 11, at the end of chapter 10, in verse 39, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and it says in verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So he went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in first, and there he remained. So Jesus has just had a, a problem in Jerusalem. They're seeking to arrest him, and he retreats into the Judean wilderness. He is not far from this village of Bethany. Bethany is about two miles outside of Jerusalem, and Jesus has retreated because things have gotten hot in the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus isn't scared for himself because he knows that his time has not come, but because his time has not come, he and his disciples have headed out to the wilderness. So Lazarus is ill. If you've had someone in your family sick or a child, you kind of have those moments where you're like, well, how sick is sick enough to take him to the emergency room? You guys know what I'm talking about? And as things progress, I'm sure they're wondering, do we bother Jesus or do we send to Jesus? Well, I would suggest that when it says that he's ill, this is ill, ill. This is bad sick. And they send messengers, they send runners to find Jesus. They get word to Jesus. Hey, just a quick sidebar. How do we get word to Jesus today? How do we do that? Prayer. Oh, that was really good. You guys are on your game. Prayer, right? It's interesting. Do you see how they approach Jesus? Jesus, the one whom you love is ill. Their, their approach to Jesus is to call upon the love of Jesus for them. I think that's kind of cool. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Larry. So when he heard that Larry was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, now I'm going to be honest, verses 4 and 5, they contain some things that I, I think are a little bit difficult to understand. Again, we see that word but. Jesus is going to give an answer here that is a little bit unexpected. When the messengers come and say, hey, listen, the one whom you love is ill, he says, this illness doesn't lead to death. This illness is actually for God's glory. Can I just pause there for a minute? Are we okay with that? Are we okay with the idea that sometimes followers of Jesus Christ get sick and they get ill and in that trial and in that season there is something going on in that situation that is there it's there for a reason it is not random it is there to bring glory to God are, are we okay with that it says this So, that's kind of like a but. He's, he, he does something unexpected here. So, so, so when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, verse 5, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Wait a minute. If Jesus loved this family, why didn't he immediately go? Wouldn't that be what you would expect? Jesus said because he loved them, he didn't go. I think that's a little troubling. It's interesting as you 
move through this passage, Jesus is actually going to give three reasons why he doesn't immediately go and heal Mary and Martha's brother. First, because he loved them. He just said that. Because he loved them. Verse 5. In verse 15, further down, it says, he says to the disciples, for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. And later on, he's going to say when he's at the, the tomb of Lazarus, that they may believe who sent me to the people of Bethany so that they might believe. So in lingering, Jesus gives three reasons. Because he loves his family, because he wants his disciples to believe, and because he wants the people of Bethany to believe that he is God. All three of those reasons are outside the scope of the answer to prayer that Mary and Martha sent the runners to resolve. Can we just acknowledge for a minute that God's mind is probably a little bit more complex than ours. He can accomplish different things than maybe what we can see. Can, can we dismiss the notion that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people? And maybe through our circumstances, the things that have our hearts troubled this morning, have us anxious this morning, that God is being glorified in ways and he is accomplishing things that we can't see. says in Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. See, what happens to me in the moment when I am suffering or I am anxious or I am troubled in heart, I begin to believe in that moment, God's not for me. This circumstance is random. Everything that happens in a Christian's life is for a purpose. It's interesting, John Newton said it this way, everything is needful that God sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. So I lead a small group on Wednesday nights. Now many of you are in small groups and most small groups are going through and answering questions from the previous week's sermon, right? The problem is if you're in my small group, I'm always thinking ahead to the next week's sermon So rather than ask you questions on what you've heard, I ask you questions on what you've never heard but are about to hear. Makes for really difficult breakout time. But as I was talking to my guys last week, I asked this question. For the guys sitting in the room, the six or eight of us that were there, how many of you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, were driven to your knees to surrender in a moment of personal crisis? I'll ask that same question in this room. How many of you, if you were looking back on when God saved you, would you say that that came, that decision came out of a crisis? How many of you would say yes? Oh, don't be shy. Yeah, yeah, yeah many of you. And, and often it's in the moments where we don't have control and we can't control our circumstances and we realize that we're not sufficient for what we're facing, it's in those moments that God uses the crisis to accomplish a greater purpose. So Jesus looks at these messengers and he says, this illness will not lead to death. It's for the glory of God. Who did he say that to? Well, he said it to the messengers, right? So if you're a messenger and you've been sent, hey, Lazarus is ill, Jesus says this won't lead to death, what's your next move? 
You run back to Mary and Martha and you say, we found Jesus, we gave him the message, and he said, Lazarus isn't going to die. So Mary and Martha in this moment, they're like, our prayer has been answered. See, see, one of the problems that I have in teaching through John 11 and the story of Lazarus, how many of you know how this story ends? Oh yeah, like, like, for those of you who don't, spoiler alert, he's going to die. Okay, and Jesus is going to raise him from the dead. But because so many of us know that that is the case, we already see the resolve at the end of the story. But you've got to realize at this point in the story, Mary and Martha don't know what's going to happen next. So when the word comes back to them from the runners, the messengers, hey, this isn't going to lead to death, you can understand that they had confidence that Jesus was going to come. Verse 7, then after this, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, uh, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? <laughs> the problem isn't that Jesus is going back to Judea. He said, let us go, which means they're going too. He's like, bad plan. Don't you remember what just happened? Jesus answers in verse 9. He says, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble, but he sees the light of this world. If anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus has early referred to himself as the light of the world, and he's basically saying, listen, if you're with me, nothing's going to happen to you. My time hasn't come yet. There is a time coming when I will be arrested, betrayed, tried, beaten and crucified but that day is not yet and he gives him that assurance and it says in verse 11 after saying these things Jesus said to them our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I will go awaken him the disciples said to him Lord if he has fallen asleep he will recover verse 13 now Jesus had spoken of his death but they thought that he meant rest and sleep then Jesus told them plainly Lazarus has died and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him. So, so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So Thomas, not the optimist in the story, he understands that if they go within two miles of Jerusalem to the city of Bethany to where Lazarus is, that there's going to be some danger there. I think John is making a point, has one of the disciples writing this, that Jesus didn't delay because he was scared to go back near Jerusalem. He delayed for other purposes. Let's keep going. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. I would just like to point out from those verses that when Jesus finally gets to Bethany, um, this is full-blown funeral. The friends have gathered, the family has gathered, the sisters are mourning. It has been four days. There is no um, doubt that Lazarus is dead. So, verse 20 so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. So again, Martha, she's a doer, right? Jesus is approaching the city. He's on the outskirts of Bethany, and rather than wait for him to get to the home where he is obviously headed, Martha gets up, she's a doer, and she meets Jesus before he can get to the house. And again, you don't ever have to wonder what Martha's got on her mind, right? 
she's got some things to say. And I want to look at the three questions or the three things that she says to Jesus. And, and, and here's where I'm driving with this this morning, just so you understand. In their previous encounter, encounter, Jesus had looked at Martha and said, you are anxious and troubled by many things. So I'm looking in her questions, what were the things that Martha asked Jesus that give us some indications of why she wasn't experiencing the peace of God? Look at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I don't know the tone in which that question is asked. I don't know if that is an accusatory tone. I'll be honest, from what I see in the text, I don't think so. I think it's actually a statement of faith. And the reason I think that is, is she began her statement with Lord. She acknowledges who Jesus is. And then she said, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She fully understands that he is God, that he has the ability to heal. But, but maybe in that statement, considering her circumstances, that they are at a funeral as Jesus approaches, you can understand her sorrow, her frustration. You can sense the lost hope in her question. I want you to think about what Martha has been through in the past few days, for, for some of you, maybe you've been in that room as someone struggles and then dies. What was that like for Mary and Martha? They saw their brother get ill. It doesn't sound like this was a long illness that had been there for years. It sounds like it came on suddenly. We don't know exactly what he was sick with. Maybe he all of a sudden started to run a fever and they didn't know why, or maybe there was a cough in his chest that continued to grow deeper and deeper. And you got to remember back then there was limited medical attention, so maybe it was something as simple as appendicitis, but there was no way to treat it. And maybe the appendix burst, and then all of a sudden that poison is throughout his system, and the abdominal pain becomes excruciating, you know, excruciating. We don't know the exact nature of the illness, but can I say this? If you've been in the room, one of the things that you understand is seldom is death not ugly. Would you agree? And as these sisters watch their brother, most likely in agony, I wonder if his lungs filled with fluid. Did he began to gurgle with each breath. Did his breathing become more shallow? Did he cry out in pain? Did they put cold washcloths on his forehead to alleviate the fever? And all the while, as they're caring for their dying brother, are they looking out the window? Is Jesus here yet? Is Jesus here yet? He said this wouldn't lead to death. And then he's still. And he's gone. And Jesus doesn't show up. I think there were some things in Martha's past. Jesus, where were you? If you had been there, this wouldn't have happened. I think sometimes we don't see the peace of God because as we look over the course of our lives, there's some things that we have in our past that we say, Jesus, where were you? If, if, if you had been there, how could this have happened? Speaking with 
One of our praise team members this morning who was telling me about a friend that they have who has walked away from their faith at the loss of a spouse saying, I can't trust in a loving God anymore because of. I think sometimes we forfeit the peace and we result to being troubled and anxious because there is something in our past that we don't understand. Martha asked Jesus the question, Jesus, where were you? Sometimes when God delays to do what we think he should do, those are really painful. Those are really painful, difficult times. And if we're honest, sometimes we just struggle to trust that if God had been there, certain things would have happened. Here's a second thing. Look at verse 22. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, on the surface, that seems like a good question. It's again, it's a statement of faith. Whatever you ask of God, God will give you. But there's something underlying here, and I'm going to show you the tell in a moment. Do you see how she's distanced herself from that truth? Whatever you ask God, God will give you. But what I asked God, I didn't get. She's saying with her mouth something she doesn't believe in her heart. And we're going to give a lot of grace here because this girl's been through a lot. Could we agree? But in this moment, in this season... She's basically saying, not only, Jesus, where were you, but can I trust your promises? I thought you said this wasn't going to lead to death. And and I know what you say is true, but I'm not sure that it's true for me. Can I trust your promises? Have you ever been there? You know what's real, but you just don't believe that it's real for you? It's interesting, as I was studying this, my mind drifted to another story, Old Testament story, of, of a guy by the name of Abraham who waited and waited and waited and waited for God to fulfill his promise and give him a son in Isaac. And then as Isaac grew, God says, hey, that's going to be the child of promise. Through him, all of the nations of the world are going to be blessed. So he has this son that he waited for. He's got this promise of what's going to happen to Isaac. And then God says, oh, by the way, kill him. And in that moment, Abraham had to be wondering, God, what about your promises? Like, how in the world can that be true? And we're given some insight into his faith in Hebrews 11, verse 17. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Look at verse 19. This is key. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Go back to that thing that is troubling your heart, that is creating an anxiousness in your heart. And maybe it's been there for a while and and things aren't getting better and there is no resolve to that. And, And that promise from Romans 8, 28, which I read earlier, hey, that everything in your life God is working together for good, you're like, I don't see it. Neither did Abraham. But he had to make a choice. Am I going to trust in the promises of God? Or am I going to lose hope? I have been in the counseling room with couples 
who say the marriage is done, it's over, we can't put back the pieces, it's broken. And I, in trying to give them hope, I've explained other cases in our church. Well, we had this, and you can't believe what God's done, and you can't believe how God has restored, and you can't believe how God has healed relationships between spouses or between parents and children, and, and yours is not as unique as you want it to be, and God could still show up here. And I've looked into the faces of people saying, I don't doubt that that's happened, but I just don't believe that it will for me. Martha asks, where were you? Can I trust your promises? Look at verse 23. Here's a third trust question. Can I trust you now? Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to Jesus, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. There's a timing problem here. Jesus says, Lazarus is going to rise again. She says, I know he will in the last day. My hope is in the future. And listen, it's important to have our hope in the future, right? Like, like we're hoping in the future. We're told very, very clearly in Scripture, 1 Peter 1.13 says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13 tells us that hoping for the return of Christ, the blessed hope, the hope of the church is waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is a day coming when the brokenness of this world will be no more. And Christ says to sin, enough. And he takes his place on the throne and he rules and he sets what is broken and he fixes it. That day is coming and we look forward to that. Would you agree? But that's not our only hope. As followers of Jesus Christ, our hope is not in a relationship with him someday. It's with being with him today. Martha says, I trust you in the future. But I got to tell you, my hope meter right now in this circumstance is pretty low. Where were you? Can I trust your promises? Can I trust you now? Look at how Jesus responds, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha, do you believe this? What Jesus does here, he takes this statement, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha has just said, I believe that someday he will rise in the resurrection. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. Not I was the resurrection or I will be the resurrection, but I am the resurrection and the life and it's in the present context. I want to be that for you right now. Christianity is not about afterlife with Jesus. It is about life with Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am the solution that unravels the brokenness of your past. I am the one who makes sense out of your current anxiousness and struggles. And I am your promise and your hope for the future. He looks at this gal Martha. Do you believe this? This girl who was anxious and troubled by so many things. Verse 27, she responds to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. That is an incredible statement of faith. Now, as we go through the New Testament, you say, what are some of the greatest things that were said in 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the Gospels, one of the first things on the list is Peter. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they're like, well, some say you're Moses, and some say you're Elijah, or some say that you're a prophet. And he turns to Peter, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We give tons of props to Peter, right? Martha's statement is so much better than Peter's. Because when she makes this declaration, the trial isn't done. We know how it ends. She does not. And her brother is still dead. And in this moment, Martha is beginning to grasp that Jesus is not just some future hope. He is a current reality. Jesus says, I am right here. Here's the second thing that he says. Jesus says, I feel your pain. When Jesus saw Martha we, or Mary weeping, verse 33, I've jumped down there, sorry. Verse 33, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And Jesus said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then verse 35, Jesus wept. Why is Jesus crying? Verse 38, if you go down three more verses, as Jesus comes to the tomb, it says, then again, Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. So he cries when he asks where Lazarus is. When he gets to the tomb, he's greatly troubled and moved again. Why is Jesus crying? He knows the end of the story. He's orchestrated everything up until this point. He delayed in coming so that this would happen, so that the glory of God would be on full display. Why is he crying? Because he misses his friend? That doesn't make sense. I'll give you two reasons as best as I can understand. First of all, Jesus sees and feels. His heart is knitted to the pain and the struggle and the agony that Mary and Arthur have been going through. Christianity is so unique in this. There is no other religion that takes the God of the universe and puts him in a position where he feels our pain, where he bears our sorrows. Most would view God as up there, orchestrating the events of the world, disconnected in some way, demanding obedience or penance of some sort. Our God is with us in the middle of the storm and feeling your pain. Jesus is weeping because of the brokenness which sin has caused in this universe and the consequences of sin which have led to death and the sorrow and the grief that it has brought to the creation that he so desperately loves. Do you guys see that? And I think there's a second reason. When Jesus gets to the tomb and it says that he was troubled and greatly moved... You need to know what follows the story. After Lazarus is raised from the dead, word travels very, very quickly to Jerusalem, and the leaders say, oh my goodness, he just raised somebody from the dead. And Mary may have done this earlier up in Galilee, now it's right in our backyard, and this place is going to go crazy, and we got to kill that guy so that the Romans don't get upset. As Jesus approached Lazarus' tomb, he understood fully that to cancel this funeral was to schedule his own. That the cost of raising Lazarus was that he was going to have to die. That's our Savior. He's not just raising Lazarus from the dead. He's going to take his place 
in the tomb. Jesus tells Martha, I am here right now. I feel your pain. Here's a third thing. Let me be enough now. Verse 41. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen uh, strips and his faith wrapped in a cloth, his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Again, can I just take you back to that moment for a minute? Martha, so troubled and anxious by many things. Jesus, where were you? Jesus, I understand that you're good. I just don't see it in the midst of what I'm going through. Jesus, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. All of the agony, all of the sorrows, all of the sitting next to Lazarus and caring for him as he dies, the moment Lazarus comes bopping out of the tomb, What's that moment like for Martha? Does the pain of the last week get replaced immediately with joy? In that moment, does the suffering that she's gone through become a distant memory? Moms, I don't understand you. I'm just going to be really honest. I remember my wife wanting to have kids, and that made sense to me. And then Calvin was our oldest, and uh, Kristen got pregnant, and I was in the delivery room, and she had the baby. All of that makes sense to me. What I don't understand is the second baby. <laughs> because I was there. I saw what the first one was like. If I had to go through that, I would never have had the second. It just doesn't make sense. But I think for moms in the room, what happens is after the baby is there and the miracle has arrived, as bad as the pain was, it becomes distant and secondary, right? You think that's what it was like for Martha as she saw her brother restored to life? And just one more question. So Martha sees Lazarus. Does she embrace him? I don't know what that exchange was like. We don't have the detail. What was it like when Martha looked into the eyes of her Savior, Jesus? Do you think her questions were answered? Do you think that her trust was restored? Do you think that she knew with confidence that Jesus keeps every promise that he ever makes? So what are you troubled and anxious about this morning? Can I give you the big idea this morning just as I close? The big idea is this. And it's a question. It's a choice that we make as followers of Jesus Christ. The big idea is this. I will judge my circumstances by Jesus' love rather than judge Jesus' love by my circumstances. Let me say that again. I will judge my circumstances by Jesus' love rather than judge Jesus' love by my circumstances. Listen. I don't know what that thing is that came to mind when I said, what are you anxious about and what are you troubled about? I don't know what that is for you. 
And I'm not going to give you some lame answer like, don't worry, God's going to show up and meet your need. I'm going to push it another level. He's not going to show up. He's already there in the midst of the storm. He is your resurrection and life. He is working his purposes. He is accomplishing things. And his word is always true. He is the resurrection and the life. The question is, are we going to trust him? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, this passage and uh, this challenge. And uh, I am amazed. I'm amazed at your words towards Martha. And when she lacked faith, that you didn't rebuke her, that you didn't cast her aside, that you didn't say, well, because of lack of faith, then I'm not going to. No, you chose to feel her pain and to show your love for your glory. Your promises are kept. Father, I pray for the people in this room. I pray for moms in this room. And Father, we grow weary, and I would confess that the questions that Martha asks have come off my lips as well. Where, are, where were you? Where are you? Can I trust your promises? And Father, we declare and we praise and we lift your name. Your promises are always true. And for that, we thank you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.